What's up, MLB Morning Coffee listeners? We have our first sponsor. Please welcome to the show, Sit Stay Paul. Is there a better feeling than walking through the door and seeing your dog so excited to see you? There really is nothing better than a happy, healthy dog. Sit Stay Paul, Boston-based dog treat company, focused on all natural, healthy ingredients, is dedicated to helping dogs live happier, healthier lives. At Sit Stay Paw, they treat dogs as part of the family and understand you do too. That's why they use the highest quality all-natural ingredients in each dog treat. Each recipe has been developed along board-certified veterinary nutritionists and is packed with the flavors your dog loves and the nutrition they need. Stocking stuffer ideas? Do your friends have dogs? Sit Stay Paw's Blueberry Pancake Chewies are made with real blueberries full of antioxidants, fiber, and vitamin C and K the perfect stocking stuffer dip for your friendly pooch. Their carob chip chewies are a natural sweet treat your dog will love, full of vitamins A, B, D, calcium, iron, magnesium, everything your dog needs. For the next four weeks, listeners can go to sitstaypaw.com. That's www.sitstaypaw.com. And on Facebook and Instagram, at sitstaypaw. And use code MLBCOFFEE. That's right, MLBCOFFEE. For 10% off your first order. Take a pic, throw it on the gram, get your dog on the Sit Stay Paw Instagram. Sit Stay Paw, go get your dog a treat. Now, on with the show. Ah, yes. Welcome to MLB Morning Coffee here on a Tuesday morning from the Ocean Avenue Studios in San Francisco, California. Thank you so much for coming along for the ride. My name is Greg Mraz, the host of this program. We are brought to you by Sit Stay Paw. Go to sitstaypaw.com, enter promo code MLB Coffee at checkout for 10% off of your first order. We have a lot to get into today. Free agency news, news from the MLB Players Union, and the potential for a delayed start to spring training. But first, I want to make sure we touch on the passing of Henry Aaron because we have not had a chance yet to do so on this show. Hall of Famer Hank Aaron died on Friday at the age of 86. Considered by many to be the true home run king, he hit 305 over a 23-year Major League Baseball career with 755 home runs and a Major League best 2,297 RBI, a total that more than likely will never be topped. Hank Aaron was a 21-time All-Star, a three-time Gold Glover, won two batting titles, won the 1957 World Series, and won the 1957 NL MVP award when he hit 322 with a major league best 44 homers and a major league best 132 runs batted in. Aaron was elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame on the first ballot in 1982 and remained a tremendous ambassador for the game up until his death last week. What you have to admire most about Henry Aaron is that he was able to achieve the greatness that he did while facing racism in the Jim Crow South. He was from Mobile, Alabama. His debut in 1954 came just seven years after Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier. People remember Hank Aaron at the late stages of his career because that's when he broke the home run record. He debuted in 1954. When he broke the home run record, he had already played in the big leagues for 19 years. As the civil rights movement pushed forward in America, so did Henry Aaron's baseball career. 
and the amount of racial angst that he received is unimaginable. There are countless incidents of him being called racial slurs, the N-word, receiving death threats, and the other. And through it all, he handled himself with the utmost class. When the controversy surrounding Barry Bonds and the steroid era came about when Bonds broke Henry Aaron's record, he also handled it with the utmost class and taped a message for Bonds congratulating him on breaking the record that was shown right after Bonds hit the record-breaking home run at AT&T Park back in 2007. I wish that I had been able to see Henry Aaron play. My greatest memory of him is the fans trotting alongside him when he broke the record at Fulton County Stadium in Atlanta. I've seen Henry Aaron speak on video several times. I feel like he's one of the more underappreciated baseball players of all time. Yes, I know that's difficult for somebody who's second on the all-time home run list and was a lifetime 305 hitter with 21 all-star appearances. But to me, Henry Aaron is a guy that we don't talk about nearly enough as one of the greatest outfielders of all time, hence one of the greatest players of all time. And here's what's remarkable about Hank Aaron. Hank Aaron never hit more than 47 homers in a season. Barry Bonds had a 73-homer season. Mark McGuire, a 70-homer season. Sammy Sosa, a 68-homer season. Heck, even Babe Ruth had a 60-homer season. Hank Aaron never hit more than 47 homers in a single year. But you know what? Hank Aaron also hit 40 or more homers eight times in his career. That's remarkable. That's how you get to 755 career homers. Hank Aaron also led Major League Baseball in RBI four different times. He had 11 different seasons when he had over 100 RBI. Seven of those seasons, he had at least 120 RBI. And in his 1957 MVP season, he had 132 RBI. And six years later in 1963, he had 130 RBI. He finished third in NL MVP voting that season. He won three gold gloves. And by the way, his 21 All-Star appearances came from 1955 to 1975. The only two years that he did not make the All-Star team were his first and his last. His last year, by the way, was with the Milwaukee Brewers. His second last year was also with the Milwaukee Brewers. So he made 11 All-Star teams with the Milwaukee Braves, nine All-Star teams with the Atlanta Braves, and one All-Star team with the Milwaukee Brewers. Henry Aaron had a remarkable career, and it's one that is not appreciated enough. I never got to see him play, so I don't have any personal anecdote. But people all around the internet have presented great stories and great features on Henry Aaron that are coming to light in the wake of his passing. I hope that you go back and you read some of them. I haven't yet had the chance to, but I'm going to very soon. Because Henry Aaron, to me, is one of the top five baseball players of all time. He is. And he doesn't get talked about in that realm nearly enough. And I hope now that Hank Aaron has passed that we finally start to talk about him in the realm that he should be talked about as one of the greatest players of all time. He is considered one of the greatest in my mind, but to others, he isn't. And my question to you is simply, why not? 305 batting average, 755 career home runs, the all-time leader in RBI. I don't understand why some people don't list him as the greatest player of all time. Yeah, he was not the greatest defensive outfielder, but he still won three gold gloves. 
He wasn't the defensive wizard that Willie Mays was. He played at basically the same time that Willie Mays did. I love Willie Mays, but Henry Aaron hit 95 more career home runs than Willie Mays. We can talk about Willie Mays as being one of the greatest outfielders ever, but we have to include Hank Aaron in that conversation. And I hope that more and more people will finally look at the numbers, look at what he did, and say, this is one of the top three baseball players of all time. Maybe I'm missing the boat in regards to how people talk about Henry Aaron, but at least in my mind, there aren't enough people that say Henry Aaron is the greatest baseball player of all time. Now, a lot of people don't think that, but I really feel like more people should say, whether that opinion's right or wrong, Henry Aaron is the greatest baseball player of all time. Because by the numbers, and if you take out everything in regards to Barry Bonds and the steroid scandal, there are legitimate arguments to say that Hank Aaron is the greatest baseball player of all time. Not everybody subscribes to that argument. I hope more do. We've lost a lot of legends in baseball over the past year, but this one is as big as any of them. Rest in peace, Hammer and Hank. In some significant news, the Players Association turned down the latest owner's proposal for a universal DH and an expanded playoff format for the 2021 season. This is from ESPN. Quote, the union stance has been all along that it did not want to talk about a trade of the universal DH, which benefits a group of players in return for expanded playoffs. Nonetheless, MLB included the two items in its proposal, and that concept has been turned down per sources. The news, by the way, was first reported by MLB Network. From what it seems like, based on the reporting, the Major League Baseball owners effectively said, if you want a universal DH, then you're also going to have to take expanded playoffs. And the players' union said, nah If you throw in expanded playoffs, we won't take the deal. And I think that that's fair. I think that we look at the expanded playoffs based on this past year and say it was a 60-game season. It was pretty bastardized as it was anyway. You don't have a large enough sample size to determine who were actually the best teams in Major League Baseball. Like We knew based on what we saw that the Dodgers and the Rays were the best teams, but do we really feel like any of the teams 5 through 8 may have ended up in the top 4 if played out over a full 162 games? I think the answer to that question is yes, but the reason why the Players Union rejected the expanded playoffs is that they're not going to see a dime of that playoff TV revenue. The owners want the expanded playoffs to pad their own pockets. That money is not going back toward the players. So the owners wanted to dangle that carrot out there in exchange for the Universal DH. And the reason why the players want the Universal DH is for two reasons. Number one, so that pitchers don't have to hit, and I know that a lot of pitchers do not want to hit. And number two, so players like Ryan Braun, Dan Vogelbach, and others who are not great playing the field can sign with a National League team and feel like they can play a full 162 as the DH so that it can expand the options of National League teams to be able to have an extra guy in their lineup as opposed to the pitcher. The owners gave the union a take-it-or-leave-it deal. The players decided to leave it. They effectively said, we're not going to go to expanded playoffs because we know we're not going to get that money, and having a universal DH is not worth us taking that financial sacrifice. I do worry, though, about what's going to happen after the 2021 season. 
the collective bargaining agreement is going to expire. The players' union and ownership already have a very fractured relationship. Is this going to fracture it even further? I hope not, because I don't want to see a work stoppage. But it really feels like we are headed down that path. And by the end of this current CBA, I would not be surprised to see a full-on work stoppage. A letter today was sent by the president of the Cactus League and the mayors of all of the Cactus League cities in Arizona to delay the start of Major League Baseball spring training. This letter was obtained by Jeff Passan of ESPN, and he made a very good point in regards to the city of Glendale. The mayor of the city of Glendale signed on to this letter, which explicitly states that it would be preferable for Major League Baseball to delay the start of spring training because of Maricopa County's ICU capacity. However, Glendale, where the NHL's Arizona Coyotes play, is currently allowing fans inside their arena. Double standard? Absolutely. But I think that the out-of-state travel, at least in regards to the fans and in some aspects the players that are going to have to travel from all different corners of the country and the globe, makes it a much riskier proposition to have spring training before we can guarantee that enough people are going to end up vaccinated. I think it's an interesting letter. I don't think it's going to make a difference at all. I don't think Major League Baseball is going to care, especially given the fact that the other spring training league in Florida is more than likely going to start without any delay because, well, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida doesn't care at all about COVID safety. He hasn't cared once about COVID safety throughout the entire course of the pandemic. So why would he change now? Answer, he wouldn't change now because a tiger never really changes his stripes, or in this case, a corrupt governor never changes his policies. But you get the point that I'm trying to make here. The president of the Cactus League, who signed on to this letter, even acknowledged if we can't delay the start of spring training, we can guarantee that we will indeed be ready for when spring training does arrive in Arizona. Today is January 26th. I think that we still have a long way to go before Major League Baseball opening day 2021. We're going to hit a lot more hiccups. We're going to hit a lot more road bumps. And we have not seen the last of resistance to delaying the start of the season. More parties and more people involved are going to want a delayed start. And you'll see more people start to push back on that potential delayed start. We have a long way to go before we know exactly when baseball is going to begin in 2021. There are a few trades we need to talk about in regards to the New York Yankees. First, Adam Adovino gets traded to the Boston Red Sox along with minor league reliever Franklin German in exchange for a player to be named later or cash. Also included in the trade is $850,000 to Boston to cover part of the $8 million owed to Adam Adovino in the final season of his three-year $27 million contract signed prior to the 2019 season, The Yankees are still responsible for his $3 million signing bonus, which has not completely been paid off since that deal was struck. This is the first time the Yankees and the Red Sox have traded with each other since 2014 when Stephen Drew was sent to the Yankees in exchange for Kelly Johnson. The other trade that had occurred between the Yankees and the Red Sox since 1987 was when Mike Stanley got dealt to the Yankees for pitcher Tony Armas Jr. and Jim Messier. So very odd to see a trade between these two clubs, but it indeed does happen. 
The Yankees also acquired Jamison Tyon from the Pittsburgh Pirates in exchange for a triage of prospects. This is a very low-risk move for New York because Tyon is only making $2.25 million in 2021. He is eligible for unrestricted free agency in 2023. So the Yankees get somebody that has the potential to be an ace in a rotation. Granted, Tyon missed all of 2020 recovering from injury and only made seven starts in 2019. But in 2018 and 2016, he had two very solid years. His rookie year in 2016, he had a 338 ERA and 104 innings of work. And in 2018, he had 191 innings of work with a 320 ERA, along with 14 wins, two complete games, and one shutout. He also had 179 strikeouts to just 46 walks that year. The Yankees have some questions in their rotation. James Paxton, more than likely not going to come back. Masahiro Tanaka, he is more than likely going to return to Japan, per some reports. And we have no idea what Luis Severino is going to look like when he does return in 2021. So... The Yankees decided they needed one more starting pitcher, and they went out and got him for a very low cost. Jamison Tyon is reunited with his former Pirate teammate Garrett Cole, and hopefully that will be able to revive his career after he's recovering from his second Tommy John surgery. Jamison Tyon at his best can be a top two guy in a rotation, pair him with a healthy Garrett Cole, and oh boy, you are looking at one heck of a rotation. The Boston Red Sox made another couple of moves. They signed Garrett Richards to a one-year $10 million deal and Kike Hernandez to a two-year $14 million deal. First on Hernandez, this is somebody that is the ultimate definition of a utility player. He can play pretty much everywhere. Hernandez had a career-high 21 homers back in 2018 and is somebody that has showed that he can hit the ball out of the ballpark over the last few years in Los Angeles. The Dodgers somewhat knew that they were not going to be able to afford to keep him given the money that they have spread in other places and also given the fact that they have to worry about re-upping Corey Seager fairly soon. So it was almost a given that Kike Hernandez was going to walk. I think that Boston got him on a relative bargain at two years and $14 million, meaning he's making $7 million per year. I fully expect he's somebody that is going to play every day, and if he doesn't play every day, he'll be a defensive sub and a matchup switch in whenever the situation calls for it. So picking up somebody like Kike Hernandez is a big bargain at $7 million a year because $7 million a year to play every position, I will sign up for that. Now to Garrett Richards. $10 million is a lot of money to give a guy that hasn't pitched over 100 innings since 2015. He has had a lot of difficulty staying healthy. From 2016 to 2020, he has only made over 10 starts two times. He has not pitched over 76 innings in any season since 2015. Richards was very good when he was healthy. In 2014, he had a 2.61 ERA. In 168 and two-thirds innings with 164 strikeouts and 51 walks, in 2015, he was 15-12 and 12 with a 3.65 ERA in 207 innings of work, the only time in his career he's pitched over 200 innings. But since then, he has not been able to stay healthy. He went to San Diego, he made just three starts in 2019, and in 2020, he pitched 51 and a third innings, 2-2 two two record with a 4.03 ERA, maybe a sign that he's getting healthier, but Garrett Richards for $10 million? Even if it's only one year, I still am not a fan of it because I just don't trust him to stay healthy. Hours after it was reported that Michael Brantley was leaving the Houston Astros to join his teammate George Springer in Toronto, Brantley re-upped with Houston on a two-year, $32 million deal. 
Brantley, in his time with the Astros, has hit a combined 309 with 27 homers and 112 RBI. His 2019 season in Houston was probably one of the best in a major league uniform. He hit 311 with 22 homers and 90 runs batted in over 148 games. Michael Brantley had a lot of problems staying healthy in his last three years with the Cleveland Indians, but in his first two years with the Houston Astros, he has proved to be an Ironman. He played 148 games in 2019. He played 46 in 2020. He got a couple days off here and there. He hit over 300 both seasons. In each of his last three seasons, including his final season with Cleveland, he's hit over 300 the year before in 2017. He hit 299. Michael Brantley doesn't strike out a whole lot either. In 2019, he k just 66 times in 575 at-bats the year before in Cleveland. He k just 60 times in 570 at-bats. So he's a low strikeout rate guy. He hits for a high average. He's not going to hit a lot of home runs. If he gets over 20 homers, that's a really solid year. But given the fact that Houston just lost George Springer, Michael Brantley is going to be somebody that is the face of that franchise, at least in the outfield, for the next couple of years. Josh Reddick is not coming back there as well. So Houston's getting younger, but they decided to keep one of their best free agent acquisitions in the final year of Jeff Luno. Jason Castro also signed a deal with the Houston Astros to return to the team that originally drafted him. Castro left the Astros after 2016 to go to the Twins. He spent 2017, 18, and 19 with the Twins, signed with the Angels in 2020, and then was traded to the San Diego Padres. His bat has really struggled, but he's a very good defensive catcher. He's a lifetime 230 hitter in 10 major league seasons. And hopefully he will stabilize the catching position for Houston, which was manned primarily last year by 34-year-old veteran Martin Maldonado. Finally, the 2021 Hall of Fame class is going to be revealed later today. All of the ballots have been submitted and they will all be finalized before the vote is revealed to the public. As of right now, Kurt Schilling has 74.9% of all known votes, and that's about half of the total ballots that have been submitted. So we'll see if Kurt Schilling gets over that 75% threshold. Barry Bonds is at 73.3%. Roger Clemens is at 72.8%. From what we know, these are the only three guys that have a legitimate chance of getting in this year. If any of them crosses that 75% threshold, it will be surprising because none of them has been able to do it in each of their first eight years on the ballot. They all came onto the ballot, Clemens, Bonds, and Schilling, at the same time back in 2012. They all retired after the 2007 season. To give you an idea, here is the final known vote in 2020. Barry Bonds was at 64.1%, Roger Clemens at 63.8%, and Kurt Schilling at 73.7%. So Schilling almost got in last year. Everybody seems to get a little bit of a bump. Schilling in 2019, he received 64.7%. In 2018, Schilling was at 57.5%. Does this mean he's automatically going to cross that threshold? No. But are the odds in his favor? Yes. We will find out later today. I will say this. If Bonds or Clemens don't get in on this year's ballot, they have to get in on next year's ballot. I've already made my case about David Ortiz and why if you let him in on the first ballot, you have to let in Bonds and Clemens because you're holding guys who did the same thing to absolutely different standards. All three of them took performance-enhancing drugs. So why are you going to put in one guy because you like him and keep the other two out because you don't and you think they cheated? They all did the same thing. 
So if you put Ortiz in, then you have to put Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens in. If they get in today, I'll be surprised. And if they don't get in, I hope people will wake up and put both of them in in 2022. Kurt Schilling, that's the one guy I really feel like has a chance to get into the Hall of Fame today. We'll find out and we'll talk to you about it tomorrow morning. Thanks for listening to this edition of MLB Morning Coffee, a production of the Ocean Avenue Studios in San Francisco, California. Have a great rest of your day, and we will catch you tomorrow morning.